This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Mark Thiessen. And I'm Danielle Pletka. And welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Danny, we're backwards today. What the hell is going on? Well, Mark, funny you <laughs> should ask, because the reason we're doing this backwards today is you had an extraordinarily important and I think extraordinarily eloquent piece in the Washington Post. It ran online last week and it took up two full pages in this Sunday's Washington Post, which I think is the kind of space, real estate newspaper talk, real estate that it deserved. It is entitled, This is the America First Case for Supporting Ukraine. And I want to ask you about the piece. And you're going to be our co-host today, and you're going to be our guest. And let's talk a little bit. But first, I want to know, why did you write this piece? So I was growing concerned. We were a year into the war. And I mean, everybody's been inspired by the courage of the Ukrainian people. I think whether, no matter where you stand on Ukraine, 90% of Americans would say, boy, the Ukrainians have just impressed us with their courage. But I was getting concerned that after a year of fighting, no one had made the comprehensive case for helping Ukraine based on U.S. national interests, right? Not solidarity with the Ukrainian people, though I think that's important. But why is not this- Not just democracy. Not just democracy versus autocracy, as, as President Biden likes to say it. But why is this in America's interest? Why is it good for American citizens, for American national security, for American economic security, prosperity, and all the rest uh, to do this? And that should be the job of the president. You know, when I was in the Bush administration, not a week went by after the 9-11 attacks where the president didn't give an address or some sort of event talking about what was at stake. He always used to refer to the consequences of failure and the consequences of success in what we were doing. And so President Biden should be doing that, and he isn't. And so I decided to write what would have been essentially the speech I would have written for Bush if he were the president right now and were supporting Ukraine, and he was going to report to the American people, give them the report that they deserve, saying, what's at stake here? Why is this important for America? And ask them for their support based on U.S. national interests. So you called it the America first case. But one of the reasons that I think that you felt this was urgent and you know we've been talking about this for a long time, and whenever we talk to our guests about this topic, we bring up the same questions. It is because support on the right, where it should be strongest, where 20, 30 years ago it probably would have been strongest, yeah. has been softening. And you cite a few polls, those on the right, Republicans, who say that we're providing too much aid to Ukraine has increased from 9% where it was last year, not long after Russia invaded, to 40%, according to a Pew Research poll earlier this year. What accounts for that? 
a few things. First of all, the good news on that poll is that 60% of Republicans say that we should support Ukraine until Russia is defeated and all of its forces are driven out of the country. So a majority of Republicans are in the right place. And I actually, interestingly enough, I did a column in the Post separately on this. 69% of DeSantis supporters say that we should support Ukraine until Russia is driven out. Note to uh, our aspiring Republican uh, nominee, uh, this is where your people are. But I think there's a number of reasons for it. I think one of them is that I don't think the they see a strategy for victory for the Biden administration. They hear, we'll stand with you as long as it takes, but then they don't see a strategy for how to end it in success. And so it sounds like another endless war to them. And then I think the skeptics on the right, and they range from you know people like Bridge Colby, who I think is well-meaning, and basically he's concerned that we're not going to be able to help Taiwan. So people like that, uh, who don't wish the Ukrainians ill, to other people who are a little bit less benevolent in their views on this. Um, they've been raising a lot of objection. You hear them saying things like the war's costing too much, it's depleting our military readiness, it's increasing the risk of nuclear confrontation with Russia, it's distracting us from the threat posed by communist China, and and that causes a lot of people to ask, like, okay, I, I, I support Ukraine, I think I'm on the side of the Ukrainians, but why is this in our interest? Is this actually hurting our national interests? And those were those are legitimate questions. And I thought that they needed a comprehensive answer because I think you can make the case, and I did, I think, in this piece, make the case not on the basis of altruism, not on the basis of idealism, but on the basis of raw, realist perspective of American interests. And so I wanted to make the America first case for what's happened, for what we're doing. Okay, so let's go through your 10-point argument. Number one, You say Russian victory would embolden our enemies. You use one of the strongest cases, I think, uh, you can, actually, when you you remind people, hey, how'd we do on Afghanistan? (laughs) Was that good for us? So tell us a little bit about the case you make. Ask yourself a simple question. Did Joe Biden's catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan embolden Vladimir Putin? to invade Ukraine? And the answer is obviously yes. Of course it did. He looked at that. He looked at how, if you go back to the period right before the Ukraine invasion, where he capitulated on Nord Stream 2, where he refused to deliver lethal aid to Ukrainians in advance of the invasion. And you you look at that, and Putin looked at that and said, yeah, Biden's not serious. He's not going to do anything. He's not going to impose a cost on me. And so I think he was emboldened. But imagine then if Biden had responded the way Putin expected and the way some of the critics on the right would have him respond and say, yeah, it's not our problem uh, and let him get away with it. All the same people who are criticizing Biden right now would be saying, look at what a weak President Joe Biden is. Not only did he let the Taliban march on Kabul, he let Putin march on Kiev. This is the weakest president in American history. And what a catastrophe for American national security. And they'd be right. Well, that makes the case then that we should be doing what we're doing and helping the Ukrainians because you don't want American weakness to be rejected on the world stage that way. Now, everybody knows what I think, but let me make the counter argument on this for you. What everybody hated about the withdrawal from Afghanistan was not the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was the way we withdrew. There are, you know, those of us, I hope a substantial majority of us who believe that we never should have withdrawn, that the consequences have been, apart from Ukraine, even more disastrous in Afghanistan, allowed al-Qaeda to return, allowed the Taliban to return, etc. But the truth is that a lot of people on the right didn't disagree with the fact of withdrawing from Afghanistan They just disagreed with how he withdrew from Afghanistan. So what's the counter argument there? Well, let's take them at their argument that they don't want boots on the ground in Afghanistan. We don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine. 
Well, you know, and this gets to a later argument that I'll talk about later, which is the return of the Reagan doctrine. But we are doing this without sending U.S. boots on the ground. We are doing it simply by providing arms and weapons to freedom fighters who are fighting for their own freedom. And if we were not willing to do that, then that that would, if Putin were allowed to invade a country uh, in the in the heart of Europe and conquer it, uh, he wouldn't stop there. And our enemies around the world would look at that and be emboldened from the Middle East to East Asia. Russian victory would push the decline of the West narrative that Putin and, uh, and Xi Jinping are trying to push. It would erode our alliances in Europe and Asia. China's influence would rise at our expense. But again, the answer to Biden's weakness is not to push him to do less, as some on the right are doing. It's to push him to do more to help the Ukrainians prevail. And we can do that, and we can do that without putting American troops in harm's way, with the simple cost of some American treasure to help the Ukrainians while they take all the casualties and they do all the fighting. So let's get to part two, because this is interesting to me. You mentioned Elbridge Colby, probably not known to most of our listeners, but he, and as well as some of our colleagues here even, uh, and, and others, people who are serious, in other words, yeah. they make the argument that the United States can't afford to be distracted from the challenge that is China, and that we are pouring too much of our energy, our planning, and our weaponry into Ukraine at the expense of our standing up to Beijing and the Communist Party there. What's your case? Uh, the opposite is true. So if the Afghanistan debacle emboldened Vladimir Putin, how much more would a Russian victory in Ukraine emboldened Xi Jinping. It would make war on the Taiwan Strait more likely, and unlike Ukraine, it would, that war would probably involve U.S. troops. So if you think about it from Xi's perspective, if the United States is not willing to stand fast for Ukraine, which is an internationally recognized sovereign state, are we really going to stand up for Taiwan, which isn't? And if we are not willing to expend money to help Ukraine defend itself, are we really going to risk American lives defending Taiwan? I think she would look at that and say, no, we're of not. not. It, would be a sign of, <laughs> it would be a sign of weakness. And this is the argument I get into with Bridge, is that he says that we don't, you know, he argues that we don't have enough military capability to help both help Ukraine and defend Taiwan. And so therefore, we need to save our resources for Taiwan. I get into that later in the piece, because I explain how there are different capabilities that are needed for both. But the point is, it doesn't matter what weapons you have if you don't have will. I mean, history is decided by will and by perceptions of will. Exactly. I, and so it doesn't matter what weapons we have if the Chinese think that we're not willing to put our money and our reputation and our prestige on the line to help Ukraine then they calculate that it doesn't matter what we have in our arsenal. We're not going to defend Taiwan. And that makes it more likely they'll invade. That makes it more likely there'll be a war. And that makes it more likely that American troops will have to fight. Right. And I think there are two additional devastating points here in your favor. She said stepping out of her pretend interviewer role and getting into your <laughs> I agree with you role. One is that the Taiwanese ambassador, the representative of Taipei here in Washington, B. Kim Shao, said, no, 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 Taiwan needs victory for Ukraine. That's number one. Yes. But number two is Xi's own position visiting Moscow, taking his little baby Putin under his wing and telling him, no, no, we need you to win. Right. Listen to what Xi Jinping tells you. He needs Putin to win. That should be a clear indication to us that we need Putin to lose. And that gets to point three. And that gets perfectly to point three. You make the point. Defeating Putin would weaken the Sino-Russian partnership to make the case. So Xi Jinping 
is trying to create a Chinese-led global order that favors the world's autocracies. And pursuing that goal, he made a bet on Vladimir Putin. He's met with Putin, as Matt Pottinger pointed out to me, former Trump deputy national security advisor, more than 40 times since taking office. So these people who are saying, oh, we're just pushing Russia and China closer, they right. were already close. <laughs> 40, 40, 40 meetings. times. 40 times. And Joe Biden's defense secretary can't even get a one-on-one with the Chinese defense secretary, but she's met with Putin 40 times chasing people. him like a like a like a teenage girl right um, it's embarrassing but look China's no limits partnership with Russia Matt Pottinger told me it's a signature personal policy of Xi Jinping so his personal reputation is on the line in the struggle and Putin's defeat would do a lot of damage to Xi because it would send a message that he made a bet on a loser it would be a blow to the heart of the emerging sino-russian alliance it would restore America's reputation for strength and stability if we were to prevail nations across the world would have incentives to deepen their trade and investment and security ties with us at the expense of China and a Ukrainian victory would make America stronger uh, safer and more prosperous on the other hand if Putin were to win in Ukraine, it would lead to an expansion of Chinese economic influence in Europe. I think a lot of our allies who are already skeptical of U.S. strength and will uh, would re- return to doing business with Russia and with China. And those same doubts would drive our Asian allies to make accommodation with Xi Jinping and with China. And so the United States would be weaker, less prosperous, and less secure. So I think this is a chance to strike a blow at this emerging alliance, axis, whatever you want to call it, and strike a blow against it and, and damage it. I like axis of evil. I think that works for this. So we've made this argument repeatedly. You alluded to it before, but you argue that support for Ukraine will restore the Reagan doctrine. Absolutely. So here's the thing. For most of the past two decades, we've been following the Bush doctrine, which I supported, which is the the principle after Find the- Find them and kill them. Well, it's a little bit more than that, but yes, that the principle was after September 11, 2001, we wouldn't wait to be attacked again. We would go out and fight the terrorists over there so we didn't have to face them here at home. And eventually, over time, I think I think that helped keep our country safe for two decades. But over time, Americans grew tired of the casualties, grew tired of the American military deployments around the world. And so you had two presidents, Obama and Trump, who began to withdraw our forces, reducing our military footprint abroad, turning to allies around the world and empowering them. So when we were, you mentioned Afghanistan at the start of this, by the time we withdrew and Biden withdrew, America wasn't actually fighting in Afghanistan. We were enabling the uh, the Afghan forces to do the fighting for us, and we were providing training and weapons and all the rest of it. So that's a very similar situation to the one that Ronald Reagan inherited when he came into office uh, in, in 1980. After the Vietnam War, there wasn't a great appetite amongst Americans to send U.S. forces around the world to slay dragons and to fight the communists and to drive expansionist Russia back. And so what Ronald Reagan did is he forged the Reagan Doctrine, which said, that there are freedom fighters around the world who want to fight their own wars of liberation, and all they need from us are the weapons, training, intelligence, diplomatic support, and other things to fight those wars for us. And by providing that assistance, Reagan helped those freedom fighters from South Asia to Central America push off an expansionist Russia, and that won the Cold War. And in Ukraine, the Reagan doctrine is making a comeback. We were being reminded of an old policy, which is that we can push back on totalitarian aggression without having to deploy American troops at every hotspot around the world. The problem we have is that Joe Biden is no Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. that you know Ronald Reagan provided, for example, the Afghans with the weapons and uh, capabilities they needed to drive the Soviet military out of Afghanistan. Whereas Joe Biden, Biden needs to be forced into He's every slow rolling move. everything. We Absolutely. need to we need to drive the Russian military out of Ukraine 
the same way we drove the Soviet military out of Afghanistan. And all the people said it's going to start a nuclear war, all the rest Garbage. of it. Garbage. It didn't, it didn't happen to... It didn't. Not, not only did it not happen, but, but answer this one basic question, people. He can't even defeat Ukraine. He's going to go looking to get into a war with the United States next? What? I mean, that, it's, it's a ridiculous proposition. Even Putin isn't that nuts. <laughs> it's true. Yep. I, think, I think it's a very persuasive case. Okay, here's one that I think people are going to find less credible, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your argument here. Victory, you say, will save the U.S. billions. Okay, right now it's costing us billions. How is it going to save us billions? So think about this. Right now, Ukraine is decimating the Russian military threat to Europe. Almost Our, literally the correct word, because decimating means driving it down to one-tenth of what it was. Exactly. And they're, they're, a, they're well on their risking, way. Without risking a single American life in the process. So mm -hmm. Russia may never be able to regain the strength that it has spent in Ukraine. Let me just give you some statistics. Its military has suffered more combat deaths in Ukraine than in all of its wars since World War II combined. Russia has lost 2,000 tanks, more than half its operational fleet, thousands of pieces of military equipment, including combat aircraft, combat vehicles, unmanned aerial vehicles, radar, anti-aircraft systems, 18 Navy ships. And the British Defense Ministry, now I'm reading for you from your piece, estimates that 97% of the Russian army is now committed to Ukraine. And we're not even beginning to talk about the human casualties they've taken, which are, you gave, again, you gave a combat death number relative to the number of deaths they've lost. But we are talking about well over 100,000 combat deaths Absolutely. here. I mean, this, you know, just for everybody who thinks about this, the strength of opposition to the Iraq war, to the Afghanistan war, combined in those two, we lost substantially less than 20,000 American troops. They lost 20,000 in the first couple months. No, it's exactly right. And so every Russian tank, every Russian plane, every infantry division the Ukrainians destroy, it's that much less we're going to have to spend defending Europe in the decades to come. What we're doing is we're producing, and the Ukrainians are producing, a Russian defeat dividend. What it means is the United <laughs> States, if we are successful will uh, in helping Ukraine, if the Russians are defeated and if their military is decimated in this way, we'll be able to redeploy forces from Europe to the Pacific theater to defend against a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We'll be able to create conditions of peace and stability in Europe that will allow us to expand trade and different opportunities for engagement on security and other things. And over time, we can supplant Russia as the primary energy supplier to Europe. So their financial benefits will be enormous if the United States wins. On the other hand, think about what happens if, if Ukraine loses. What that means is the cost will be astronomical because what will happen is after absorbing Ukraine, Putin will bring Ukraine and Belarus and Russia into a, into a confederation. He will threaten the Baltics. He will threaten other parts of Europe. They'll be on the borders of Romania, Slovakia, and Poland. He'll probably move against Moldova, uh, the Baltic states, and maybe even Poland. Uh, Steve Hadley, former national security advisor, laid, laid this out for me, which I quote him in the piece, and setting his sights on establishing a land bridge between, there's an isolated uh, Baltic port of Kaliningrad, which he would have to cross Polish and Lithuanian territory to build. He would not stop where he is, and what that would do is would create a a requirement on the part of the United States to dramatically increase its defense spending in Europe. Not to speak of potentially activating Article 5 of our NATO treaty. If, if, if that happened. In, if that in order happens. to deter him from doing these right. things, which would be his next goals. And then Makes we would have to do that while at the same time 
increasing our military spending in Asia in order to deter ta- uh, China from invading Taiwan who would because the Chinese would be emboldened by a Russian victory. So our in defense spending both in Europe and the Pacific would would skyrocket. So helping Ukraine win is a bargain in comparison to the costs what we would have to spend if Russia were to be successful. You make another argument here that I really like, and I especially like it because I think a lot of the conversation we've had up to now has been, you know, has been rehearsed. We've heard people say, you know, no, this is the importance of victory. No, it'll help us against China. I think that this is one of the hidden uh, benefits of the war in Ukraine, which is that you argue it is a proving ground for new weapons. I don't know if people remember, but one of the reasons why George H.W. Bush in the first post-Cold War conflict did so well against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, we're talking about the 1991 Desert Storm, was because all of the weapons that had been in development in the 1980s finally found a place to be tested, and nobody could believe what they were seeing. That was when we unveiled the Patriot missiles. We unveiled a whole series of new technologies the world had never seen. And you argue we're we're doing just that. We're testing these, but via the Ukrainians, without U.S. boots, in this conflict. And without U.S. casualties. I right. mean, look, it's become a testing ground for new weapons, as you say. Uh, let me just give you a few examples of this thing. So Ukrainians have deployed a new real-time information system known as Delta, which is a cloud-based network-centered warfare system developed with NATO that allows Ukrainian forces, local officials, even vetted civilian bystanders to plug in the information on, on Russian military positions and share them with the Ukrainian military. I'll give you an example. I was A few weeks ago, I met with a group of Ukrainian and mayors who were visiting AEI, and I was talking about this, and one of the mayors pulled out his cell phone and showed me Delta on his phone and showed me in his town all the reports of where the Russian positions were. He had it on his iPhone, oh my sitting God. at AEI, right? This, is, this has never been tried before in combat. It was developed with NATO to help the Ukrainians and to help civilians report so they know in real time where all the, all the positions are. They're using new sea drones that have never been used in combat, what we call uncrewed surface vessels, and combining them with aerial drones to attack the Russian Navy. A drone in the sky is easy to spot. A drone on the waterline is very hard to spot, and it's never been, these have never been used in combat in this way. They've used them to, to take out almost 18 to 20 Russian ships, including the Moskva, which is the pride of the Black Sea Fleet, a major— Was uh, the pride, was the of, pride the of the Black Sea <laughs> Fleet. Now exactly. it's more like the Italian Navy, uh, seen these, in a glass-bottom boat. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. Sorry, joke. Italians. <laughs> no, that's okay. But look, that 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 could be very useful to us in testing that in defending Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait. We will probably end up using uncrewed surface vessels. The Chinese were to try to attack across the Taiwan Strait. And remember, to reach everybody, Taiwan. these technologies save lives. Yeah. Right. We talk about boots on the ground. We talk about conflict. We are talking about maximally devastating the enemy while maximally protecting our own troops. Absolutely. And that's, that, this, that's what's happening yeah. here. They're it's amazing. Using, and they're also exercising. There's, there's, some of this stuff is really cool. I don't know. I geek out on some of these military technology. But they're using, they're using a new Lithuanian-built uh, anti-drone weapon called Sky Wipers, which have never been before <laughs> used in combat. And this is literally it's a shoulder-held anti-drone weapon that they can take out these drones and track where they came from so they could take out the drone operator as well. Uh, we I wish they could take out the, the pen- drone suppliers in yes. Iran. Well, that's true. Uh, the Pentagon is sending them experimental anti-drone missiles to take down the Iranian-built Shahid-136 uh, self-detonating drones. And Ukraine put out an offer to uh, to U.S. defense contractors to send us your stuff. Try it out in 
combat, you know, at that, and people are taking them up on it. Amazing. And then there's one other thing which I think is interesting. That we're also testing new military concepts, right? So after the after the Russian this is the how not not the not the what of fighting, but, but the, the how, how of fighting, right? After the invasion of Georgia in 2008, and then after the first U- invasion of Ukraine in 2014, the U.S. military came up with a something called the resistance operating concept, which is a blueprint for how small nations can resist larger nations invading their territory, involving the civilian population, involving resistance. And we're using that in order to help the Ukrainians as a, as a military and tactical strategy to resist the Russians. It's worked amazingly. That could be helpful to Taiwan if the Chinese were to somehow get across the Taiwan Strait and there had to be a land battle. Our strategy there is to stop them from getting across the Taiwan Strait. But if it came to it where they needed to do it, that ta- all those same tactics would, would be operational in, uh, in Taiwan as well. And then finally, the important point is that we're reorienting the U.S. military planning concept. So, you know, the famous phrase is uh, armies always fight the, the last war over again, right? And so what's the last war for America? It's fighting non-state actors. It's fighting terrorists. It's fighting insurgencies. And so our military planners have not focused on conventional war against a, a large state power for 20 years in any serious way. This is reorienting our military to focus on conventional war. And what we're able to do is practice and exercise that. Normally, if we were to exercise a war game with a great power, you'd do it on a tabletop exercise with computers, and you'd have to guess at what the enemy is doing. Here, you're exercising it in a war game scenario where you don't have to guess what the enemy is doing because he's doing it in real time. And there are no American lives expended. We're exercising these concepts. We're helping the Ukrainians, but we're also helping our military reorient itself for planning and executing great power conflict, which is what we will probably face uh, in the 21st century. And there's another element to this as well, which is tied up in that, which is that it is helping us do something that for reasons that are completely inexplicable, I know to both of us, we have allowed the atrophy of our defense industrial base. We had an outstanding podcast with CSIS's Seth Jones a few weeks ago that I commend to everybody if you're interested in this issue. But you really lay out, you know, strongly, first of all, it is imperative if we're going to even pretend to have a chance at fighting the Chinese. Because right now, if we war game it, we run out of everything after a week. We run out after a week fighting the Chinese. But Ukraine is really waking us up to this problem and helping us revitalize our defense industrial base. So you make the case for that. I do. So that's point number seven. I mean, you got to think about it this way. The money we're spending in Ukraine, military security assistance, is not actually going to Ukraine. It's going to Americans. And most people don't know that. It's going to Americans. It's going to the Pentagon. It's going to replenish the weapons that we are are giving out of our stockpiles to Ukraine. And it's going to defense contractors to build weapons to send to Ukraine. So all this money is going to Americans. It's creating jobs here. It's reinvigorating our our defense industrial base, which we need if we are going to defend Taiwan, if we're going to help uh, in any scenario. And we are not robbing Peter to pay Paul. We are not using things that we would be using in a conflict over Taiwan or even anywhere else over China 
to we're not giving that stuff to so to so Taiwan. it's different it's different equipment so let's let's put it this way I mean we do need how Taiwan if there's a land war we'll need howitzers we'll need himars but we'll our entire strategy is to but avoid a land war exactly, in Taiwan it's right? a tiny island yeah so so it is it's different because unlike Ukraine which has long borders Taiwan is an island and so that to get there the Chinese have to reach it and they have to cross the Taiwan Strait so our military strategy is to deny them the ability to cross the Taiwan Strait that is not a job for howitzers or himars or armored vehicles it's a job for F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, B-2 and B-21 bombers, nuclear subs, long-range anti-ship missiles. So we're giving none of those capabilities to Ukraine right now. The problem we have, however, is that we would, as as you pointed out, Seth Jones says, with the long-range anti-ship missiles, for example, precision anti-ship missiles, we'd run out of those in a week in a conflict with Taiwan. I mean, so so we need, so by reinvigorating our industrial base, Ukraine is actually helping generate the industrial capacity so that we will be able to replenish those weapons. It's advancing our preparedness. Yes. And also another thing, by the way, which is which is an, a hidden benefit as well, is that what what's happening with our NATO allies is that they are donating military equipment to Ukraine. Many of them are former Warsaw Pact nations, so they had large blocks of Soviet, antiquated Soviet They're weapons. They're getting rid of their old Soviet the- crap. And they're buying outstanding new American stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So, they, so it's Amazing. creating military sales for us with our advanced NATO allies. Um, that is also reinvigorating our industrial base. That's also creating jobs for American citizens. So this benefits us in so many ways because we need our defense industrial base to be strong, both for American jobs. It, it seems to be the one government-produced job that the Democrats don't love. <laughs> you know, but, we had this argument but, you know, when Obama wanted to spend money that was shovel ready. I know. Except the one place he didn't want to spend it was is on the defense. Pe- is the Pentagon. The most but you know shovel what? These, ready This is creating jobs and American uh, defense industry, American defense workers. They're the beneficiaries of it. That's outstanding. All right. Now, I want to I take you on a little bit on this. Okay. Point number eight. Not because I don't think it's good because everybody knows that's not true. What but is because point, point number eight is that the Russian invasion has strengthened U.S. alliances. Now, one thing that I know that certainly many people are persuaded of, perhaps incorrectly, I hope incorrectly, is that if Donald Trump becomes president for a second term, a real second term, that he will pull the United States out of the NATO alliance. In other words, he doesn't believe in these alliances. He thinks they're stupid. He thinks they're useless. And a lot of his kind of MAGA friends and supporters also think that these alliances are, uh, to use a more elegant word than they ever would, entangling. So why is it good that the Russian invasion has strengthened U.S. alliances? Well, first of all, we need we, we need allies because we don't want to fight alone, right? And we don't want to carry these burdens alone. Sometimes we don't alone. want to have to fight at and all. And sometimes we don't want to have to fight at all. So here's a fact that people don't realize: uh, everyone says that we're spending the most money uh, on Ukraine, and where are our allies in this? We are actually, as a percentage of GDP, which is how you calculate these things, the United States is tied for ninth place in spending on Ukraine, behind Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Norway, Poland, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic. And Britain, Bulgaria, and Finland each contribute the same percentage of GDP as the United States. So our allies are stepping up, uh, many of them. Not all of them, but many of Germany. them. Germany. We're uh, talking Germany. about you. Yeah, we talk about that in the piece. Uh, but, uh, you know, our allies are stepping up to help Ukraine. Um, second of all, Putin's goal 
was to break the NATO alliance, to weaken the NATO alliance and to weaken allied unity. Uh, and it, instead, what happened is it's done the opposite, where you had Sweden and Finland, who have instead joined the NATO alliance after years of neutrality. Not only are they joining the NATO alliance, but even before joining, because Sweden is being held up by, it's a complicated story, but it's being held up by Turkey for reasons having to do with the, with the Kurds. But it's Sweden and Finland, not only are they joining NATO, but before they join, they announced a new unified Nordic air defense with existing NATO members, Norway and Denmark. And we now have a new 830-mile NATO border with Russia, and they're patrolling it with 250 fighter jets between those four countries. That has strengthened uh, the alliance. It's also inspired, you know, we talked earlier about how our Pacific allies think that Ukraine is vital. You, you mentioned the Taiwan's ambassador saying that uh, that the Taiwan's fate is tied to that of Ukraine. Japan feels the same way. Prime Minister Kishida actually traveled while Xi Jinping was in Moscow earlier this year. He was in Bucha visiting the mass graves in Ukraine. And he says that the fates of Taiwan and Japan and, uh, and the rest of Asia are tied to Ukraine. And they have increased their defense spending by $287 billion over the next five years. That's a 60% increase. It means Japan will have the third largest defense budget in the world. South Korea Amen. is increasing its defense spending. They've authorized having uh, howitzers, uh, South Korean-produced howitzers transferred from Poland to Ukraine. So our allies in the Pacific are also stepping up. All of that helps U.S. national security because we have better burden sharing as a result. Number nine, uh, the point is victory helps prevent nuclear proliferation. I really, really like this argument because obviously everybody knows, you know, I'm, I follow Iran and the Middle East. But I think that um, I think that it makes a very, very cogent and undermade argument about nuclear proliferation. It's not just the Chinese who are watching. It is everybody out there who wondered how loyal the United States was after after Obama pulled us out of Iraq, after Biden pulled us out of Afghanistan. Everybody asked themselves, who are you going to betray next? Right? Yeah. And I think this is a very interesting point. Here's the thing. This war is happening in Ukraine because the U Ukrainians, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, surrendered their nuclear arsenal at our insistence. So these, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Ukraine inherited 2,000 strategic nuclear weapons, including bombers and missiles, to deliver Just them. in case people forgot that. Yeah. But that's, and, a, that's a lot of nuclear weapons. And, and if they still had those weapons, Russia would have never invaded. That's for sure. So, you know, we signed an agreement. The Clinton administration actually brokered an agreement. In fact, Bill Clinton actually said the other day that he feels personally responsible for the Russian invasion because he convinced the Ukrainians to give up their nukes. And if they hadn't given up their nukes, this would have never happened. But the Clinton administration brokered a, an agreement called the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances. And what that said was Ukraine agreed to give up its weapons, its nuclear weapons. The U.S. and Britain promised to, quote, provide assistance to Ukraine if Ukraine should become a victim of aggression. And Russia pledged to, quote, refrain from the threat of use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine. Yes. That was the deal. And of course, like all Russian agreements, it was worth spit. Yeah. But apparently our commitment was also worth spit because in 2014, of course, let's not forget that mm -hmm. this war did not start in 2022. This war started in 2014 when the Russians marched in and took Crimea and the response of not just the, the Obama administration, but also of the Europeans was, eh, who cares? Whatever. Budapest memorandum? What was that? Exactly. So... 
if you if we now allow them to finish the job, uh, then the lesson to every country around the world is I'd better get nuclear weapons as fast as I can because if you have nukes, uh, you won't get invaded. And if you don't have nukes, you do get invaded. And then that's not all. Would-be aggressors will take the lesson that they can use their nuclear arsenals as cover to invade their neighbors and use them to stop us from helping by conventional means. So if Russia is allowed to conquer Ukraine while threatening to use its nukes, then Beijing is going to conclude, well, we can invade Taiwan and use our nukes to deter the Americans from helping them conventionally. Or Iran can finalize its nuclear program, attack Israel, and then deter them from from responding. North Korea can can unify the Korean Peninsula and use its nukes by developing weapons to go on. and, And here's the thing, too, then. If Iran gets nuclear weapons, guess who's going to get nuclear weapons? Saudi Arabia, the other Gulf states. And so you're going to have a Sunni-Shia nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And then our allies in, in Japan and South Korea may decide, well, our nuclear umbrella isn't so good. We've got to get nuclear weapons. So failure in Ukraine could set off a global nuclear arms race, and it will spark more wars of aggression around the world because the lesson to the nuclear powers or would-be nuclear powers around the world is if you have nukes, you can deter the United States from helping conventionally. And that means we will be involved in more wars around the world. There'll be more aggression, more instability. And that's much more likely to cause World War III than anything that's happening in Ukraine right now. Your final point is perhaps the most important point, because I think it is the answer to those who say, oh, another endless war. Oh, no, victory is unachievable, which is actually Ukraine can win. Why do you make that case? Well, because Jack Keane tells me it's so. <laughs> we believe Jack <laughs> And we believe Jack Keane. We had him on the podcast, and he talked about this in great detail. Yep. And it's not just him. General Chris Cavoli, our Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, actually met with senators and congressmen at the Munich Security Conference, and they asked him point blank, if we gave the Ukrainians F-16s and we gave them attackums, could they win the war? And he said yes. Right. So what that means is, is that they can win the war but only if we give them the tools to do it. So, And in a timely way. In a timely <laughs> way. I mean, everything. Biden does the right thing, but he does it six months late. A day late and a dollar short. You know, and what Jack explained, which I think is really important, is that he, you know, he's a former vice chief of staff of the Army. He knows how to carry out combined arms warfare. He says that if you want to prevail in combined arms warfare, you need certain ingredients. You need tanks. You need long-range artillery. You need air defense. And you need advanced fighter jets. And if you have those things, you can take territory. Imagine and if, if we had given these things, things to the Ukrainians so those when they asked the for them. So are the things that Biden is slow rolling, of right? Course. We made them fight for the first few months of the war with Soviet-era non-precision weapons. Then we finally gave them HIMARS, which are mm. these medium-range uh, artillery. But we Some see, of us call them HIMARS, Mark. <laughs> Fine. HIMARS. Uh, we gave them HIMARS. But Biden had them secretly modified so they couldn't fire long-range rockets. Yeah, no. And he won't give them the attackums, which, which are have the 190, range. 190 range. So, what, again, I met with these, these Ukrainian mayors. And the mayor who showed me the Delta system on his phone, he says, in my town, which is in, right near the Russian, the Russian front, he says, the Russians now know we just need to be 40 kilometers outside. We can do whatever we want. They can't reach us. And so what they do is they station themselves outside, and then they they shell cities, and they shell schools, and they shell hospitals. They've got a Biden perimeter. That's a great phrase. I wish I had included that in the piece. I wish (laughs) I had talked about that. And so what we're doing is we are not providing them with the weapons they need to prevail in a timely manner. If we do that, if we provide those weapons, if we give them the F-16s, if we give them this, Jack says we could win this. The Ukrainians could win this thing in a year. 
By victory, I mean drive Russia out of every inch of Ukrainian territory that they have unlawfully and held, not give them a perch to Crimea, invade again. And not give them a perch to, uh, to invade again, because if we let this have some sort of a settlement where they get to where you have some territorial concessions, it's just going to be like 2014 over again, where they're going to do it in a few years time after they've re tried to rebuild their military and reconstitute themselves. And then they'll go for it again. They have to be decisively defeated. Zelensky, that's what the Ukrainian people want. Every poll shows that the Ukrainian people want a decisive victory. They want every Russian taken out of every inch of Ukrainian territory. And Zelensky doesn't have the flexibility to cut a, to cut a deal because he'd be thrown out of office. It's a democracy. That's not what the Ukrainian people want. Right. So the only thing stopping that is a lack of American weapons and a lack of American presidential will. That's for sure. And I think we've provided ample evidence over the last year and plus to make the case for that. And finally, of course... Your last word, which I, I very much agreed with, is, but most importantly, beyond all of these things, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. So I, I purposely, for 3,500 words, didn't mention democracy, didn't mention right and wrong, didn't mention good and evil. But, you know, I did mention the Reagan doctrine. And Ronald Reagan, in his evil empire speech, pointed out that America cannot remove itself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil because that's who we are. And we cannot be remain neutral. The struggle in Ukraine is a struggle between right and wrong and good and evil, and America can't remain neutral. And even that is a matter of self-interest because the expansion of, of prosperity and freedom and everything we've seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been driven by the expansion of democracy around the world. Democracies don't wage wars on, on us. They don't attack their neighbors. They don't cause us to have to go send American troops around the world to defend people. They don't cause mass people. refugee crises. They don't cause mass refugee crises. But even if you're not persuaded by that, you should be persuaded about the idea of peace through strength, which is that if we want to be secure, if we want to avoid another cataclysmic war in which Americans are involved in, the best thing we can do is to stop the Russians from succeeding in Ukraine. I avoid talking about isolationism in most of this piece. Um, because I think a lot of the people who are skeptical of this are not necessarily isolationists. I start the piece by saying that most conservatives are not isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. They are willing to support U.S. leadership on the world stage and us leaning forward as long as they understand that it's in America's interests. But the isolationists in the 1930s, they were concerned that we had just come out of World War I where we had lost 20 million lives. There wasn't much we in that 20 million mark. But by not doing anything about Hitler's rise, by allowing him to gather his strength and invade the Sudetenland, and, and he was not appeased by that, it led to World War II, which cost 60 million lives. Uh, it was worse. And so we need to learn the lesson of, of history in the 20th century, which is that an America first strategy involves not allowing expansionist powers to gobble up other countries because eventually it draws us in. Well, that's what uh, uh, that famous poem uh, by Father Niemöller said, right? You know, first they came for the for the socialists and I'm not a socialist. And then they came for the Jews and I'm not a Jew. But of course, as it, it is the story of America eventually. If you don't stand up, they do come for us. We learned that with al-Qaeda. Yeah. We've learned that with ISIS. We learned that with the Germans and the communists and the Japanese back in World War II. It is amazing that we need to be retaught that lesson again and again. It is a fine reminder that you've given us. And let me just read the last paragraph because I think this sort of sums up the entire case. I said, if we help Ukraine prevail, we can rewrite the narrative of U.S. weakness, restore deterrence with China, strike a blow against the Sino-Russian alliance, 
decimate the Russian military threat to Europe, increase burden sharing with our allies, improve our military preparedness for other adversaries, stop a global nuclear arms race, dissuade other nuclear states from launching wars of aggression, and make World War III less likely. That's the summary of the entire piece in, in one paragraph. I don't know why you needed all those words, Mark, but you did it very nicely just in that one paragraph. Yep. That's the America First case for helping Ukraine. Well, good. I hope people are listening. Please, folks, do share this around, and we will link Mark's really outstanding piece uh, from the post, but we'll also link the um, shorter summary that AEI did, and we will link the new video series where Mark really sort of lays out this case, but, you know, in person with his face <laughs> on video. So all of that is out there. All of them are resources. Uh, use them. Think about them because we're not going to get a do-over here. We need to do the right thing. Joe Biden has led us down the garden path too many times, and we need to keep his feet to the fire to give Ukraine what is necessary in order to keep Americans safe and secure. That is the imperative for the commander-in-chief, and we need more Americans to demand that he does the right thing. Amen. Thanks for listening, and take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.